Okay, everybody, welcome to uh, episode two of season one of the Mind Hunter Companion. Uh, I'm Doug. My co-host is Peter. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. Um, and uh, here we are now in episode two. Uh, we've gotten a lot of the basics out of the way, and we are going to sort of start to get down to the brass tacks of the story of season one. Uh, this is an extremely I think strong episode for the series uh, helped in, in no small measure by Ed Kemper. Yeah, Matt, this is um, what a great performance. I mean, you know, it. Uh, he's, you know, he, he just takes all the oxygen out of the room. Like he steals every scene he is in. Yeah. I mean, he deservedly, you know, wins uh, or got an Emmy nomination for, for this performance. And I, did, I don't think he's... Did he get a nomination even, or did he win? I think he was nominated. I got to look this up. I thought that he won for some reason. But uh, yeah, no, he's super strong. And then he's played in this episode by Cameron Britton. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he was, you're right. He was nominated. He didn't win. Um, but let's hear. Let, we'll, let's get to uh, let's get to Britain in a little bit. Um, so we start off episode two with our introduction to the BTK killer Dennis Rader, who is shown uh, in his job being extremely detail oriented and denying a roll of tape uh, to a colleague without the old roll. And I think the point of that scene is to sort of show that he's a little bit of a disagreeable personality maybe he just loves tape yeah or or sort of detail oriented in a way that his colleagues find unpleasant you know a, a less funny or humorous sheldon cooper shall we say um and and you know that's it that's our that's our glimpse of dennis Rader for this episode essentially um and then we cut back to holden and bill um and uh you know we are we are introduced to their plan to meet serial killers uh, as they do rolled school, to which, to which Bill is pretty hostile. Well, Bill and the rest of the traditional FBI. Right, although at this point, no one really knows about it besides Bill. I mean, this is Holden pitching to Bill, right? But he wants to interview Ed Kemper when they go to Vacaville. Right, and the reason that nobody knows about it is because he knows that Holden knows and Bill know that it would be disastrous basically to talk about it up the chain of command. Right. And they're, they're justifiably afraid that they will be ridiculed and more importantly, shut down, shut um, down. And it'll also hurt their careers. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, Holden, because he's, he's less far along is much less worried about his career per se. He's willing to roll the dice a little bit more. Um, and take gambles, whereas, you know, we don't know enough about Bill yet, but we're going to find out in a couple of episodes, you know, Bill can't afford chaos or drama in his life. Right. Right. His situation at home uh, is more precarious and he needs the stability that the job offers, you know, financially and in other ways. Uh, but we don't know that yet here. We just know that uh, Bill is a little less willing to rock the boat. Um, you know, um, before we get to some of the, the dramatic way that 
Kemper is uh, portrayed in this, I mean, it is it is worth you know it is worth kind of recounting you know what Kemper did. Uh, John Douglas talks about Kemper a lot in the and I believe the first Mind Hunter book, um, but you know, I mean. Kemper is mostly remembered for killing his mother, uh, but it's it's important to remember that he killed multiple other women in awful ways. Like he is really, he's really an extremely you know brutal and violent guy, and in, he's portrayed in a fairly charismatic way in the show by Cameron Britton. But the real, it, it's I think it's important to remember, you know, Ed Kemper is a real guy who's still alive. Um, yeah, well, I mean, he is known as the co-ed killer. Right. But I mean, really, really, really did some terrible things. So you have to kind of, I think, I think it's easy to kind of, you know, in the same way that, you know, like, like it's, it's fun to listen to Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal Lecter is a fictional guy, like Ed Kemper, not a fictional guy. Right. Um, anyway, so they go, they go up to Vacaville, uh, to meet Ed Kemper, and uh, you know he's he's super imposing. He's six nine and three hundred pounds. And the other thing is that Bill Tench goes golfing, right? He he does not want to go. You know, he says the first time that we meet Kemper, it's just um, Holden, right? And and very much uh, analogous to Clarice's introduction to. Lecter at the you know the Baltimore State Hospital, you know there is a shot of Holden sort of essentially running the gauntlet as he's you know he's he's stripped of his gun right before he's allowed in, um, and he sort of has to walk down this hallway where he's passing you know dark cells like it's it's presented as a very sort of foreboding scary environment that i think that that must have been a conscious nod to silence of the lambs yeah although you know there's the aspect that uh, you know he has to sign a, a legal release which is a little bit comedic right right like it if wasn't in silence of the lamb. um and you know it's apparent as soon as holden gets in the room with kemper that kemper not only runs the interview he runs the jail, right? He's saying to Holden, can I get you a sandwich? Would you know, would you like some egg salad? They do a good job here. And he's sort of shown bossing around other people in the prison, right? And, and it's made yeah. very, very clear that Kemper is used to getting his way all day at this place. And, you know, and you could imagine in a world where, you know, the threat of physical harm is a, is a key coin of the realm, you know, nobody's fucking with Ed Kemper at Vacaville. Nobody. Right? Yeah, he, he doesn't live yeah. in fear in this prison. And he's kind of, you know, he's a celebrity in the prison. And he also is, he's a good prisoner. You know, which he, he states that that's one of the main reasons that he gets along with the guards. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, he's in real life, he's, uh, he's waived his right to a parole. Uh, and he's he's content to live out his life in prison, like you know he's he's king of his own little hill there. Um, well, he's gone to some, I guess. I mean, some he some he would wave and some he'd go to. I mean, he's seventy years old, I guess now. 
Yeah, he's been at one facility, I think, uh, since the seventies. Though at the he's been in prison, yeah. I think, about forty-five years. Yeah, crazy. No pun intended. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember. Does Holden take the egg salad sandwich in the end? Well, he doesn't really have a choice. <laughs> You're gonna have some egg salad, buddy. <laughs> Um, and we find out that uh, Kemper wanted to be a not cop. only that you know he also <laughs> you know the egg salad is really it's it's a uh, a way to illustrate how uh, foreboding and sort of quietly intimidating um, Kemper is because he basically kind of takes over and gets him an egg salad and even when he, he says, doesn't want it you know he says it's good isn't it <laughs> Holden kind of has to say. It's delicious. Right. And, and he clearly yeah, you can didn't tell. And, and it's confirmed later that Holden doesn't like egg salad at all. As <laughs> his girlfriend, in the next scene, he orders an egg salad sandwich. And he, you know, there's a joke. He's called it an egg salad sandwich. Yeah. At first. Um, right. But it's also, it's, you know, it's Kemper's way of just establishing dominance over the, the entire meeting. Yeah. And Kemper, um, Kemper, he doesn't break eye contact. He's six foot nine. The actor, um, Cameron Britton, apparently in real life is six foot five, and they put him in lifts. <laughs> he was too short at six foot five. Six five, and they put him in lifts so that he was six nine or close, right? And, uh, you know, Kemper's enormous. He is most likely a psychopath or a sociopath, right? And he 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 does not um, he doesn't really feel shame. Sometimes he'll feel almost a little bit of reluctance to talk about things that he finds maybe delicate, but it's more like because it causes himself some discomfort, maybe to remember or talk about his mother. But you don't get the sense that he has any sense of embarrassment about anything. Yeah, and he's, he's not much, really concerned about anybody else's opinion. No, and he's much more comfortable talking about the other killings, right? Or killing in general. Like, like he says, for example, at one point he says, "Butchering people is hard work," and he calls. Yeah, that's it like a great dick. line. Yeah, but he's he's sort of schooling Holden a little bit. Like he's he's giving Holden a lot of valuable insights. Uh, in a short period of time. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, you know, like he wanted to be a cop, like he's fascinated by Wambaugh, right? Joseph Wambaugh. Yeah. He watches cop shows, like he learned from cop shows. Uh, Like he's, but he's, he's very, very comfortable sort of talking about his criminality, right? He only really gets emotional when he talks about his mistreatment as a child at the hands of his mom. But when he talks about other things, he's much more dry and clinical. Yeah, and, and very, very bright. I mean, in real life, apparently, he's what they intelligent. The IQ tested him. You know, his general intelligence scale was like 140 something. Yeah, he's tested a couple times. He comes out in the 130s to 140s, depending yeah. on the the different test. You know, the guy's clearly he's well read. He's very articulate. He's very intelligent, and he's able to analyze what's happened and analyze criminality somewhat dispassionately, at least most of the time. 
And he's, you know, he's also, I thought, one of the most interesting things that he says is he's sort of able to acknowledge that he's a bad person, right? And, and he shouldn't yeah. have been let go, right? Like he's able to sort of talk his way out of a mental hospital as a kid. Um, like in real life, the the people who certified him, you know, to leave the mental hospital when he was a youth, like they really gave him a clean bill of health and he knew that he was lying to them. Um, but he says... Like he makes two comments to to hold it. He says at one point he thinks that maybe he should have had a lobotomy, um, and then right. another point uh, he says that he thought that he sh- you know a fair punishment for him would be death by torture, right? So he's under no illusions about himself or the severity of his crimes. That's also uh, a real thing he said because I guess when they asked him. Uh, the judge, I guess, um, and his trial asked him what an appropriate punishment was. I think he was, um, he, he would have been sentenced to the death sentence, but it was, um, at the, I guess at the time yeah. of California, yeah, they, they, was, they avoided the death penalty, right? It was commuted, uh, that wasn't carried out. So, um, but that was his response was that he should be killed by torture. Um, he also, he says, you know, he, he gives Holden a lot of big, uh, big thoughts here. You know, he says, there's a lot more like me. Oh, yeah. I mean, no. you know, we talk about, we talk about how much fun, really, it's really a guilty pleasure to watch him. He's tremendously interesting. Um, and, you know, the, the Cameron Britton, as we said, is, is fantastic. But this is really the meat of the development. It's really the core of the development of, Holden, um, Holden's initial idea to create a profiling unit. Uh, really, he's their their um, ground floor, sort of that they build from. And he's um, a very good first interviewee for them. Yeah, he's willing to talk. Yeah, he talks, and he's willing to talk, and he's he's thought about things more than they have and also is more of an expert. So they really learn about criminality. I think all of their initial um, schooling about criminality takes place in the exchanges specifically with him. I think with serial killers in general, but specifically with Kemper. Um, and, and I think that that's what makes, um, that's what makes it so interesting. Uh, this, this, sort of really the highlight of of the first season or, or the this really the scenes with with Kemper to me um that in the second and third episodes in particular and you know um, it, it's an overstatement to say that Holden is in over his head per se but the events are happening a little fast for him to process and and for example almost everybody else gives him good ideas after the fact but in this first setting he's kind of just flying from the seat of the pants in this, in this in the index interview, shall we say, um, like he doesn't ask a ton of great questions. He's mostly listening. Yeah. Um, but you know, in a way when, when, um, Bill Tent shows up, he gives them kind of the standard, uh, J Edgar Hoover line, you know, questioning. Um, right. And, and, and Bill is, and Bill is much less enthralled with him, right? Holden is sort of taken with Ed. Um, but you know, in between, in between those first and second, uh, interviews with him, you know, he gets some tips from his girlfriend on how to maybe quote unquote seduce him, right. To get him to talk a certain way or, or, or talk about certain things that they want him to. 
and then it's sort of he sort of realizes that you know he really could steer Kemper more right but his girlfriend kind of gives him that that sort of that tip off but again even in the even i think it's in the second visit you know he puts his hand on on Holden's neck and head and he sort of like mimics you know fucking him right in his mouth yeah um and and again just sort of once again showing that he's exerting all this physical dominance and sort of emotional dominance over the whole encounter. And Holden is right not to really react to that, right? It allows the conversation to not get derailed, but you know, it's one of the most uncomfortable moments in that whole episode is when he puts his hand on Holden's neck. Yeah. And he's, he's wandering around with his cuffs off the whole time. Um, every time they meet, um, in uh, Holden, he doesn't know what to expect, uh, of course, and neither do do you as the viewer. Your viewpoint is back behind both of them. It's a third person viewpoint, um, and it's very, it's just sort of a cinematic medium third person viewpoint, and you get to sort of be as if you're in the room watching everything that's going on. Um, from a, a sort of a neutral observer point. And so it, it's, it re- it's not quite the fly on the wall though, because you do feel sort of threatened by him, even though like if, you know, the true fly on the wall, maybe you wouldn't, you know, that's like a camera, but like you do sort of feel engaged in the conversation and like, like you can feel the sort of the immensity of Kemper's bulk. Oh, you're, like, you're the right there. Of the room and the closeness of their proximity to him. You're right there, but what I mean is he's not moving the camera around and he's not shifting too much. There are no really big close-ups and there are no, there's not a lot of fancy editing. There's not a lot of um, shifting between medium and shots and close-ups. Um, it's very kind of new, even though you're obviously... It, close in the scene so that you feel involved as a, as an observer, but you're not there. There's not a lot of fancy tricks going on. It's really just all of the suspense is produced by, by the performance and the dialogue. And, and you know, it. Fincher who directed this episode, you know, like the restraint used in this scene is better because it allows you to focus on the dialogue and a more junior director might've, done some more dramatic camera work that would take you out of the scene. Whereas when you watch it, you know, you're not really aware of the camera work because it's so good. Like it's so understated. Right. You're only going to make things less involving if you get fancy because the, the dialogue, their interaction is so spooky and fascinating and his, and uh, you know, the, and uh, Cameron Britton's performance is so um, it, it's so involving that anything else would, would just distract. And the other thing, you know, what's even worse, you know, this is a TV series, granted it's Netflix, but can you imagine if this were kind of like your typical network TV series, you know, they would present, um, they would present all of um, Kemper's stories with reenactments and flashbacks and splashing blood and, on, a, on a piece of drywall or, you know, cl- or a trickle of sweat running down somebody's temple. And, you know, it would just be awful. 
Right, and they'd have John Goodman play Camper if it was on network TV. <laughs> no, I mean it. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, at least in the they, reenactments. They take all the menace out of it and they'd water it down. But, you know, because you don't see any reenactments and you just hear Kemper's descriptions, right? right. It, it has much more impact because in your mind, it's much worse than the way that they could show it. Exactly. It's much worse. And he's describing all you have is Kemper's words and his voice and his and him staring sort of and you watch him staring you know not really right at you first person but he he's he doesn't move his gaze and he delivers this this mixture of truth and analysis of of um of 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 description and more sort of global analysis that he thinks he's been thinking about and he mixes them together as as he as a person normally would in conversation, except that this normal conversation is about him murdering his mother and then multiple right. other women. Decapitating women and burying their heads in his yard. Right, and, and earlier torturing animals, et cetera, et cetera. And talking about how to slit somebody's throat from right. ear to ear. And he's talking about things that are very important to him, but his tone is very even. Like, you can't say his tone is dispassionate, but his tone is very even. Like, he's calm. Like, you can tell, like, he's thought a lot about this. Like, he's he's happy to have the chance to talk about this with an interested party. Right. And I think that the Tench, Tench it, it doesn't quite get why Holden is so fascinated by him because and, and taken with him more yeah. than fascinated he's a little bit enthralled with Kemper he's enthralled but I think he's enthralled for the right reasons he's enthralled because he realizes that Kemper has been is further ahead thinking about criminality from a viewpoint that he thinks that they need to establish in the bureau in order to catch serial killers and which haven't even you know been named serial killers yet right but and I think that's truly what enthralls him is that he, you know, he's with Professor Kemper, um, and Kemper, you know, gets him closer to his sort of half-formed idea than anyone ever has. And Kemper also lets them see what's wrong. You know, like he lets them realize that they need more sophisticated terminology or a more sophisticated way to think about these people. And like, for example, there's discussion in the episode that the term "lust murderer," like it's just wrong. Like it doesn't yeah. really describe what happened to the people, what's happening in the killer's mind, right? Like that's a popular term of art, right, among cops, but it's, right. it doesn't really help them get any further with thinking about things. Right. And, you know, Kemper. Professor Kemper. His Professor Kemper tenured, I guess he probably would be considered, temp, uh, sorry, tenured. He'd be a He sure is in the prison. Yeah, no, he's, he's, uh, he's definitely got tenure. He's, he's currently a professor emeritus, I believe. At age. <laughs> um, um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, exactly that. He is, he's teaching, he's teaching them. And I think that's really what, uh, what's enthralling. Um, uh, Holden. Is enthralling Holden, not just the fact that he's, there's some kind of, um, salacious aspect to it that he's talking to a serial killer or that he's sort of somehow making friends with evil. And I think what, you know, what um, their interaction with Kemper reveals is 
uh, as you were just sort of alluding to, he, there's no overlap between the way Kemper describes things and thinks about things and the cops or the FBI when, you, when you're, they're talking about how to catch people. That he clearly is in a completely different universe. And when they're talking about, as you said, you know, lust murder, um, there's no overlap when they show the cops in Sacramento trying to um, find out, find the, the, the serial, a serial killer or when they show the FBI at Quantico taught lecturing, you know, maybe with the exception of the lecture in the first uh, episode who's talking about Berkowitz and who he has a beer with. Um, there's no overlap with the professionals and with Kemper. So I think that's what really excites um, Holden. And then I think it takes, it takes Bill Tench a little while to get to that point. I think he does, you know, he does get there. Yeah, it's just it's a bigger leap for him to be willing to to take value out of what Kemper says. Like he's much yeah. more willing to write him off as a, a crazy lunatic. Right. Right. But but Tench does come around eventually. And it doesn't happen fully in this episode. It's sort of more of a process for him. And again, Holden sees it earlier. He sees the value of a Kemper earlier on. But but you know, Tench's distance allows him to maybe, you know, listen with a bit more of a, a jaundiced ear, so to speak, or be a little more confrontational in his questioning with Kemper, right? I mean, they have to, they sort of lie to him a little bit and say that, you know, Bill is, he knows Wamba, right? He sort of like, right. he drags in a little, it's just, I assume it's a lie to kind of try to get uh, Kemper to overcome maybe some of his you know, resistance. I mean, just the way that they sit, you know, Holden looks so disarming, whereas Tench has a more sort of aggressive look. He has a more sort of aggressive haircut. He's a bigger dude physically, right? Bill is physically imposing in a way Holden is not, right? And to overcome all of that, they drop this sort of like fiction about Bill knows Wamba. Yeah. Right? So, so Kemper is maybe a little put more at ease. Um, you know, we... One of my favorite bits in this episode, and this is a great episode, but one of the best bits, I think, is they have this little life on the road montage of them in road school, which is sort of like a mixture of bad food, cigarettes, booze, and rental cars. And it's amazing because I know I travel a ton for my job. Like, it's really not that different now. <laughs> like, I don't smoke yeah. cigarettes, but it's really not that different now. I don't even drink, really. But, like, just sort of the way that they depict you know, the planes, trains, and automobiles aspect of road school as sort of being like tiring and unglamorous and you're, you know, you're showering in some strange hotel bathroom or whatever. Like, it's just, it's a really, really good scene that sort of conveys that, you know, meeting Kemper is, is a really an intellectual highlight for them and an otherwise pretty unstimulating, you know, trip on the road. Um, I was listening to some interviews with John Douglas in the last couple of weeks, and he said they would typically go and do road school for a couple of weeks at a time. Hmm. You know, so they would be, they would swing through six or seven police departments, you know, maybe driving two days between each one uh, and be yeah. gone for two weeks. So you could imagine, you know, driving around in a Chevy Nova right, that maybe didn't have AC for two weeks at a time listening to the government-issued AM radio probably was not a lot of fun. Right, and then, you know, they're sharing, they're always in some dumpy motel sharing a room. Right, right, two grown men sharing motel, right? Yeah. You know, you can't tidy fart or scratch yourself. Um, 
So then, then the episode transitions to Sacramento, right? Where uh, they get asked to help out on a case of a 73-year-old woman who's severely beaten and her dog is murdered. Mm-hmm. Right? And then this is sort of, you know, this is sort of the way that they see that they can maybe take things that they learned from Kemper and apply them or think about, you know, Kemper's psychopathology and maybe use it to get insights into, into somebody else. And they realize, for example, that, you know, Kemper escalated from, you know, defiling his sister's dolls to animals. Maybe, you know, Holden has the idea that maybe the dog, right? Maybe the dog is the target. Right. The dog is killed and the, the human maybe is attacked incidentally, but but maybe the killer is escalating. Um, but they're still really thrashing around kind of in the dark, the first go around in Sacramento. I right. Mean, and they don't know. Right. They're, yeah. they're just they realize that they're this may be more than just some, you know, random transient beating up an old woman because the case doesn't really make sense. Right. At least they can tell that this is one of those new cases. This is something where the old rules don't apply, but they don't know the new rules yet. And so they don't know how to, how to analyze it or help really yet. They can just identify it at least. You know, it's right, like and step the woman, one in learning foreign languages, identifying the language, you know, <laughs> they've identified, but they don't know how to say, where's the train station. Right. And the woman, the woman who's beaten says that she remembers a smell, like the man smelled like he hadn't bay, like he stunk. Right? right. Which gives them a sense that maybe this is, you know, some disorganized person or who's not so socially plugged in. But beyond that, you know, they don't have a ton. Right. Right. Um, I don't know. I thought that whole sequence was really, really interesting because it, it is a sort of strange group of facts, right? The dog is murdered. The woman is beaten up, right? I don't think, I don't think that they say anything is even stolen from her. Right. The dog is sort of killed almost in a ritual way. And the dog is right there. The dog's throat is cut. Right. And then, uh, you know, they just, they think about how, you know, Kemper acknowledged that, you know, he, you know, he planned to kill his mother. Right, like he used the claw hammer to do it, and again, it makes them wonder about what sort of planning went into the attack, right, on this seventy-three-year-old lady and her dog. And uh, then, yeah. you know, we we kind of finish up with uh, a very confrontational scene back at the FBI office, right, where their boss, Stewart, I think that's his name, is it Stewart? Uh, Shepherd. Shepherd, sorry, uh, where where Shepherd. You know, they kind of get called on the carpet. Yeah, and Shepard, you know, personifies the J. Groover uh, FBI, as we were talking about in episode one. Um, right, you know, and, the, the, and the, old, right, the old administrative culture of the FBI, right, that is right. not warm to or prepared to accept anything that Holden and Bill are doing. Right. They have no understanding of why there's there's a different algorithm needed for a, for a serial killer. Right. Or like, it's not their job to interview them. Like what Shepard says is it's our job to execute them as his exact quote. Yes. Um, but what's good about that scene is, you know, Holden is directly threatened, right? He says, you're looking at everything, you know, censure, reassignment. Like they, they say to him directly, Shepard says, like, your career is about to end. Like, yeah, you're going to get going to get fired. Right. You're staring down the abyss. And it's I think it's a good moment because, you know, 
Bill, who can kind of speak Shepard's language, right? After sort of a pause, and you don't know what's going to happen. You know, Bill, who's kind of been, you know, running counter to Holden this whole time. Yeah. Right. Bill goes in and he stands up for Holden. Sorry, for Holden. Yeah, the first time. The first time that Bill shows any evidence of being in with the program because he's been playing golf while while Holden <laughs> goes to interview um, you know, interview Cameron the whole right. time. Well, although Bill's there the second interview. Bill's there the second interview. No, I think twice he goes by himself. I think the then the next oh, is that the, the next third episode. Time. Yeah, Maybe, next episode. But, but it's a good bit because, you know, you like Holden, you know, you're surprised that that happens. Like you don't like you don't see that coming when Bill stands up for Holden. Yeah. And and you can see that Shepard respects Bill. So when Bill pushes back and says, "Hey, there's there's value to this. Like you can't discard what we're doing." Yeah. And he stands up for Holden and he stands up for their program and Shepard's unprepared for it. You know, he's ready for tench to fold. Right. And and I mean, when he, he doesn't he, when he doesn't Shepard gives a little ground and he gives them uh you know a, a kind of a backhanded break as he says okay you guys can move to the basement both to give them a little space to work but also I think to keep them out of public view. Yeah, he's sort of warehousing them. But yeah, I mean Tench says he's on to something. So Tench says and he's and he conveys his reluctance almost to admit that to Shepard their boss. So you know, Tench says, uh, he basically says, look, this guy, he clearly is, is a little bit of a meaning a Holden. <laughs> Holden. He's a little yeah. weird. Uh, he's a little too unconventional. He's kind right. of a pain Doesn't in the fit ass. Our mold. But, you know, he's on to something. I have to admit it. Right. And, and it's then, wrong to just totally shut him down. Right. Because I think that Bill, partly because... The fact that Bill, I think, starts to realize that when the dog's throat is cut and there's some old lady and that there's no motive for the crime that they can find and, you know, and that son of Sam and all the background that we've previously talked about, that maybe there is something to this and maybe it will allow them to catch somebody. Right. He starts to to think about that as a possibility. And I think, so he conveys that to Shepard. And then, as you said, Shepard pauses and and then sticks them in the basement and it really you know like there's nothing down there it's like a it's like a storage uh it's empty shelves and boxes but it boxes and like old desks that nobody wants but it brings it back to i think kemper's comment you know when he says um he says there's a lot more like me right like yeah maybe that this is the moment when they realize like wow like you know, Kemper says that he thinks that there's more than 35, but maybe there's a lot more than 35 out there right? in, a, in a nation of, you know, hundreds of millions. Uh, maybe they're dealing with a, a much larger subset of the population than they had, you know, suspected. And they, it drives home the need to try to understand them. So the, the, yeah. the episode ends with this sort of wordless scene where they've clearly, they've had to clear out their desks and they're carrying their meager, you know, office possessions and boxes down to the basement. And they sort of look around at this, you know, windowless fluorescent lit, you know, area. And <laughs> this is dark reality. Right. <laughs> so they've, they've both kind of gotten a little bit of an uplift, but also they've been, you know, they've had the thumb squished down on them from above too. Like, they're they're still very much in a shaky position, but they've been given just enough room to breathe that they can keep going. 
Right. They're kind of almost getting unofficial support. It's like, you know, an office space or something, you know, the guy gets his office taken away and gets stuck. <laughs> right. and, you know, they're like given the worst, po- it's not even really an office. They're basically in like basement storage space. Right. And it's, and it's supposed to look awful. Like that's, uh, that's sort of how the show ends with them yep. relegated to this dump. Yep. Um, but it's a good, it's a good ending. Like it's, you know, it's a way for them to move forward from Kemper. Like Kemper is such a, a show stealer in this episode. Like the, the case in Sacramento and the dressing down brings the show back to earth. Right. That like, it's not just the fun of interviewing Kemper. It's they've got to make real progress in their organization and show, show that they're, you know, achieving concrete goals. Right. And now the pressure is on them to, to perform. Right. It brings the, the development of the, the overarching uh, storyline of them developing uh, profiling back to um, sort of a forward motion back to a, a scale and um and that's where it ends it's a great episode you know uh john douglas in interviews uh, you know he's talked a lot about the show Mm -hmm. um and you know he said that the one thing well in the interview i listened to where he talked about the show uh, specifically about the way that he's portrayed as holden he said that in real life he was older than holden and he was more seasoned like holden is portrayed as pretty green uh, but he had about 10 years as an FBI agent under his belt. And he said that, you know, that still made him one of the most junior FBI agents. And he said that everywhere he went, he was talking to older, more senior people. But like he, I think he kind of felt that Holden is portrayed as far too green compared to where he was, which is interesting to hear him talk about. But from a dramatic point of view, you know, a la Clarice, it's interesting if the protagonist is junior because then you can come along with them on this journey of discovery, right? And Holden might be less interesting or less sympathetic if he was portrayed as a more experienced agent. I think they make him just established enough. He's clearly been in the FBI for a number of years. He's not really a rookie, Um, but he's not. Yeah, they describe him as a brick agent in Detroit for a couple of years. No, he says he spent several years there. Plus, he's obviously been at the academy working, right? So he's probably been in the FBI for a while now, five years at least. Um, um, yeah, but it's just, it's interesting. It was interesting to hear uh, John Douglas talk about it. Um, yeah. And then it's just, I just wanted to point out that this episode, like the prior episode was directed by Fincher and then Fincher steps out of the director's chair and doesn't return in the first season until episodes nine and 10, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um but I don't know. I, I mean, this is only episode two of this of the first season. But this is this is one of the strongest episodes of the entire first two seasons. I think really aided by uh, Cameron Britton's portrayal of Kemper. You know, and oh, he yeah. rec- and he really recognized. I'm sure that this was a great opportunity for him as an actor. Yeah, he he really made the most of it, and we'll get to see him again. Yeah, in a couple episode of times. three. Yeah, a couple of times. He, he actually appears a couple of times more in season one. All right, should we wrap there before we move on to episode three? Or do you want to say our new uh, email address? We have a new email address if you want to reach out to us with uh, comments or complaints or kudos. All kudos are directed to me. All criticism should go to Peter. Well, that's the way it always has been, so we'll keep it that way. <laughs> General in life. That's why I 
occasionally murder the cat. <laughs> right, exactly. They destroyed your sister's dolls. Um, <laughs> what's our new email address again? Because I don't remember because you set it up. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. It's uh, <laughs> it's uh, mindhunter.companion at gmail.com. Okay, yeah. So uh, shoot us uh, shoot us some comments there. And obviously, uh, give us five-star reviews. We always like that. And uh, comments and such. Okay, so uh, we'll be back uh, to talk about Season 1, Episode 3. <laughs>